This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Sally Pipes, author of the new Encounter Broadside, The False Promise of Single-Payer Healthcare. Sally is president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, a San Francisco-based think tank, where she serves as the Thomas W. Smith Fellow in Healthcare Policy. Sally, thanks so much for joining us again today. Thank you so much, Ben. It's a delight to talk about single-payer. <laughs> well, hopefully it isn't imposed on us too soon, and I assume that one of the primary motivators for writing this book is the fact that American public opinion on single-payer health care has been shifting significantly in recent years. Tell us a little bit about where the American public is right now. Well, it used to be, uh, Ben, five years ago, single-payer health care was really a pipe dream. Nobody was talking about it. Bernie Sanders talked about it a bit, and I talked about it a bit, but in the last couple of years, it has really come to the, the forefront. Uh, Bernie Sanders with his Medicare for All bill, um, very, very expensive. Um, uh, with um, states like California had a bill last June that passed the Senate. Um, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, New York, Colorado had an initiative that failed. Um, definitely single payer is on people's radar screens. And I think now, you know, we have about 15 Democratic senators supporting the idea. We have many Democrats in the House. And about half of all Americans today are supporting the principle of single payer Medicare for all, i.e. the government would be the sole payer for our health care. A core philosophical question that gets lost in all of these conversations and debates that we have in America about health care system is a very basic one, and that is, what is it that separates the provision of health care from the provision of any other good or service in an economy? Well, it's interesting. There are two industries in this country that are really run by the government. One is K-12 public education, and the other is health care. We don't really have a market in health care. Fifty percent of health care in the U.S. today is already in the hands of government through Medicare, the program for our seniors, Medicaid, the program for low-income Americans, of which 74 million people are now on Medicaid. We have the Veterans Administration, which is really a single-payer model, and we've heard so many catastrophes about that. And last is the CHIP program, the program for children. So we don't really have a market. We had hoped um, with the election of President Trump in November of 2016 that repeal and replace, which I think Trump and the Republicans were elected to control the Senate and the House, really thought repeal and replace would happen. But unfortunately, as you know, um, by late September, um, it did not pass the Senate, even through budget reconciliation, needing only 50 votes plus Vice President Pence. So the American people wanted repeal and replace, but you know it's, it's probably not going to happen this year. And the debate, the push for single payer is sort of some, many see as the answer to the problem that Obamacare failed the American people. And I think all along, this was President Obama's dream and his goal that the Affordable Care Act would fail and we would be on our path to a government-run, total government-run system. Proponents of single-payer oftentimes like to loud all the benefits that they claim exist in places ranging from Cuba to the United Kingdom. You spent several decades of your life in Canada. Tell us about your experience with Canada's single-payer health care system. Well, the, the federal government totally took over the health care system in 1984. Um, it's called Medi the system is called Medicare. 
And back in 1988 at the Fraser Institute in Canada, where I worked, we started a project called Waiting Your Turn, a guide to waiting lists in Canada. In 1993, the average Canadian waited 9.3 weeks, just over two months, from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist. Last year, 2017, that wait had ballooned to 21.2 weeks. That's over five months, the longest in history. And I would point out that you know people here in America are saying, well, maybe California should get single payer, then it won't happen in other, in other states or across the country nationally. But, you know, in Canada, um, the Medicare program, single payer, actually started in the province of Saskatchewan under a socialist leader, Tommy Douglas. So you have to be careful because when these programs start, either at the state level or at a provincial level, it takes a while for them to really, you know, grow up and fail. And so by then, many have adopted it. So I'm very worried about those people who, conservatives who say, well, California should get single payer. Um, in Canada today, the average weight for getting an MRI is um, 11 weeks, for neurosurgery, 33 weeks, and 63,000 Canadians every year leave Canada to come to the United States or go somewhere else outside of Canada to get treat to get, so they can get treatment by a specialist where they don't have to face these long waits when their health is at risk. And, you know, my own mother died of colon cancer in Canada in 2005 because as a senior, she couldn't get a colonoscopy when she thought she had colon cancer because the waiting times for younger people who weren't over 65 was so long that she couldn't get a colonoscopy. She ultimately got a colonoscopy in the hospital where she died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. You know, it's much easier to um, have people wait for care and ration care than it is to provide care. And that's what happens when a government runs a system, whether it's, you know, Canada, Great Britain, Cuba, or North Korea. As you were describing this uh, traumatic and, and horrific experience that, that you dealt with in your family, you know, I was thinking about the, the Hippocratic Oath, which says, do no harm. I mean, is single payer not doing harm? Is the cure that it seeks to provide not worse than uh, the symptoms that we would have in a market system? Well, exactly. That is the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. And when you deny people care in Canada, put, force them onto long waiting lists. And in fact, a study from the Commonwealth Fund found that the waiting times were the longest in Canada of any of the countries uh, that they surveyed. So when you, when you deny care, a doctor is not you know, doing no harm because if you, particularly if you have, you know, cancer, stroke, heart attack, any of these illnesses um, that are very, very severe, you know, doctors want to treat um, patients and be able to treat them well. But in Canada, you know, the with these long wait times, doctors are actually uh, civil servants. They're, they're paid by the provincial government. It, ben, if you were the very, the best neurosurgeon and I was the worst, we still get paid the same amount of money. And so it really it's like K-12 education and teachers. The best are not, you know, paid based on their merit. And I think this will really have a negative impact on the best and the brightest kids going into medicine or moving on to do a specialty um, if we get uh, a single-payer system in this country. When you look at what's going on in Great Britain these days, the National Health Service was founded in 1948. It has gone from bad to worse, you know the the in the stories in the media every day. You know Brits should go, you know, cross the English Channel on Eurostar and get treatment 
um, in, in Calais. Um, thousands have protested in London, the National Health Service. President Trump was correct when he said, having read about the protests and the, the long waits, that the National Health Service single payer is not a system that would be good for Americans. And as you know, Americans are impatient. They don't want to be told that they have to wait, you know, five months to see see a specialist. And we will have fewer specialists if we get a single payer uh, system in this country. And you write that in Canada, and of course, this applies to any centrally planned sort of system, quote, the country has too few doctors, hospital beds, and diagnostic machines to adequately care for its citizens, unquote. In a freely functioning market where you have supply and demand, price signals and incentive structure, the profit motive, would you not have market clearing, quote unquote, quantities of all of these resources and goods and services that we so desperately need when it comes to our health? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the way to get affordable, accessible, quality care is not to um, empower the federal government even more. It's to open up the system so people can get the kind of coverage and care that they need and they deserve. We need to change the federal tax code because those people who have employer-based coverage, about 170 million in this country today, they get their health care tax-free, but if they lose their job or quit their job, go into the individual market, they have to buy their coverage with after-tax dollars. So we really need to open up the market. There's so many things in America that are great, you know, telemedicine, health savings accounts, which allow people to um, put money away every month in a health savings account, carry it forward, so they can pay out of pocket for things that they really don't need to use their insurance for. We really have a problem in this country because because of the number of people who have employer-based coverage. We have what you call first-dollar coverage. People who have employer coverage have no idea what health care really costs because they're not paying part of it, or maybe they're paying a small part. Therefore, they use a lot more of it. So we need to, you know, we need to open up the market. In countries like Canada, where there is a shortage of, of doctors, in Great Britain, they had a program last fall where they were trying to recruit doctors from Canada and the U.S. and other countries to help with the shortage and reduce those wait times. Well, I just read the other day that they missed their target to get 1,000 new doctors by 500. That's 50%. And so, you know, this will be even more of a problem in this country because it's, we're a large country with a very large population. And salaries, the average starting salary for a, a primary care general practitioner in the UK working for the National Health Service, which covers about 90% of Brits, um, is... 22,000 pounds, which is, you know, about $35,000. The average National Health Service doctor makes about $76,000 a year. I mean, this if this happened in the U.S. and government sets the rates, would the best and brightest go into medicine? Would those who are already practicing medicine stay in medicine? It's highly doubtful in my mind, and that is harmful to, to people who need to get health care to continue to live their lives um, in a healthy way. Proponents of government-controlled health care will frequently point to a couple of statistics uh, to counter a market-based system. They'll say, for one thing, that U.S. infant mortality rates are worse than those in developed countries with single-payer systems, and they'll say the same thing about longevity rates. You challenge both of those assertions. Uh, explain what you found in your research. Right. So infant mortality and longevity 
are two issues that always come up in debates uh, that I have with progressives. So, you know, infant mortality numbers, you have to look at how the statistics, you know, are, are uh, presented. So in the United States, we have very highly developed neonatal units. And a child that is born that lives even for 15 minutes is considered a live birth. In other countries, a child, a baby has to live a certain amount of time before it's considered a live birth. So that's a much longer time than it is in the U.S. We also, because we have such highly developed uh, neonatal units and procedures that happen, some of those babies that, you know, would not have even been considered a live birth in a European country are, you know, they, they, they die, but they've had an opportunity to get access to the very best. So we're not comparing apples with apples when we compare live births in the U.S., infant mortality, to other countries in Europe because they're not considered the same. On the longevity issue, um, you know, we have a very, uh, we do not have a homogenous population in many countries like Sweden or Norway or even to a large extent um, Canada. But the issue is on longevity because we have such a large population, we have a, a varying different income levels. You know, we, we have crime. We have a, a major problem with obesity. We have on the per capita basis the highest number of car accidents. So, you know, these are issues that have to be factored in to longevity, and they're not. So um, we, we need to, you know, we need to consider these things when talking about longevity. You also... When you take a look at the statistics coming out of oncology journals, you know, the United States, after f five years out after diagnosis from a cancer such as breast cancer, prostate cancer, we have the highest survival rates of any of these countries that are surveyed either by the OECD or, or by the Commonwealth Fund. So people have to be very, very careful when they're talking about this. You know, why do people come from all over the world to the United States to get care in the very best facilities and the very best uh, pharmaceuticals are available here because of uh, research and development. We we support innovation and we hope that that's not going to change um, in the next year, few years. Other countries have price controls on their drugs so they don't have access to the drugs uh, that we have and we want to keep that market alive and open. And so you have to you have to really think about you know when you talk about infant mortality and you talk about longevity. Are we comparing apples to apples? And the thing is, we're not. And we're very, we have a very large population with many different levels of incomes, many different. Um, we have the uh, um, an African American large population, a Hispanic population, an Asian population. So we're a very diverse country. But it's very difficult to compare um, a country with 30, 330 million people to a country like um, uh, Norway that has five million people and a homogenous population. To the degree to which Obamacare collapses, as I think a lot of us expect, and as you alluded to, as, as potentially Barack Obama himself anticipated and even perversely hoped for, you talk about in your book the uh, how Medicare and Medicaid have fared versus the expectations of those programs at inception. And of course, Bernie Sanders, among others, has advocated for making those systems the primary systems in effect in America or modeling our healthcare system after those systems. Tell us a little bit about how Medicare and Medicaid have fared versus expectations at inception. Right. So when Medicare and Medicaid came into being in 1965, under President Lyndon Johnson, 
Um, you know, in, in some ways, um, it probably for Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, it was a good thing that the CBO, uh, Congressional Budget Office, that scores things was not around. And yet, often, many times, the scores are completely um, incorrect. But, you know, it was said that if, if there had been a CBO score, uh, Johnson would never have been able to get Medicare and Medicaid through uh, through Congress. But these programs did come into being under the under the Great Society um, banner, um, as I say, in, in uh, 1965. Medicare, the program for our seniors, um, in the first year cost $3 billion. Um, they predicted, that, uh, President Johnson predicted, that by um, 1990, Medicare would cost $12 billion. In fact, Medicare cost $110 billion in 1990, so virtually 10 times what, what, what the president and what the administration at the time had predicted. And today, you know, one in three new Medicare eligibles is having a hard time finding a doctor because doctors do not want to take Medicare patients because of those low reimbursement rates. And so this is a, a major problem, and the Medicare trustees have said that Medicare Part B, which is a doctor portion of Medicare, will be bankrupt by 2030. So Medicare should be there. For those, we know there are about 55 million Americans on Medicare today. That program should be there for those people who really need it. You know, someone like Warren Buffett does not need Medicare. We need to means test Medicare today. We need to raise the age of eligibility for Medicare. Back in 1965, the average American lived to 65. Today, they live to almost 80, and so there's tremendous pressure um, on, on the Medicare program because of, 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 of the cost of it. If you look at Medicaid, the program for lower-income um, Americans, people earning below 138% of the federal poverty level, doctors are even less likely to take Medicaid patients because they're reimbursed between 39 and 42% below what they get paid for treating a, um, a, a patient with private insurance. So under Obamacare, uh, the Medicaid, Medicaid expansion um, was, was part of the program. States could expand their Medicaid programs and get full funding from the federal government you know, for the first couple of years, and that funding would, would go down. So uh, 31 states in the District of Columbia have expanded their Medicaid programs. But the problem is, even with the federal funds and the state funds, the demand for doctor services is great, is so great, but the, the reimbursement rates are low, so these people are having a hard time finding a doctor or, on the, or they are on a waiting list. So the result is that emergency room use under Obamacare for Medicaid patients is up. Emergency room use is expensive, and President Obama and his wife, Michelle Obama, had said one of the goals of bringing in a program like Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act was that emergency room use would be reduced. But when people can't, when they have a Medicaid card, but they can't get a doctor or they have a long, long wait that they think is beyond what is reasonable, they are using the emergency room. So these two programs um, need to be reformed. The states need to receive block grants for, for Medicaid, and they can design their own programs. One of the good things in the um, U.S. Supreme Court case from 2012, it was very sad that Justice Roberts didn't you know, vote to support the full repeal and replacement of Obamacare. But they did say, in, in their opinion, it was determined that states did not have to expand their Medicaid programs. But just last November, 
you know, in the state of Maine, uh, Governor LePage had um, turned down five times a Medicaid expansion bill. He did not sign it. But then last November, uh, there was an initiative on the ballot, and the Maine voters voted to expand their Medicaid program. These programs are very costly and are not, you know, the best way to help. We now have 74 million Americans on Medicaid, those people earning between zero and 138 percent of the federal poverty level. So, you know, you know, what good is this program if it's not helping the people that it was designed to help? And it's very, very costly. And I think in the coming years, you're going to see as states have more financial difficulties, their Medicaid programs are going to become even more costly and more people are going to be hurt by being on Medicaid. They should be able to, you know, get a an, um, an opportunity grant so that they can purchase the type of uh, health care plan, whether it's an HMO plan, a private plan, or whatever. The medical outcomes for enrollees have not been what were expected. And as you just noted, the fiscal health of the states who are funding these programs in part is also seriously in question. And you write in your broadside that Medicare alone accounts for one third of our national debt. What would Medicare writ large in the form of single payer do to our nation's fiscal health? Well, you know, this is one of the the big issues, and particularly in California, where the Senate passed SB 562, the single payer bill last June 1st, um, there was no, you know, there was no um, estimate of cost or how it would be paid for. But when the Senate Appropriations Committee costed it out, and you know, California is a very democratic state with the governor, the assembly and the Senate, they costed that program out at $400 billion a year, which the whole entire state budget in California is $185 billion. Um, a professor um, at University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, Professor uh, Pollan, said, well, no, that's inaccurate, $400 billion. It's actually about $330 billion. It's still a, have a huge impact and would have to be funded by further increases in t- income tax rates and payroll taxes in the state of California. Under Bernie Sanders, who I call the Pied Piper of single-payer health care, he's, you know, had a big video um, teleconference January 23rd in D.C. He's just pushing single-payer so hard. But in his, um, when he was running um, for the presidential nomination in 2016 in the summer, and he unveiled his single-payer plan, he didn't, he didn't come up with an estimate. But even the Urban Institute, which is not a conservative free market organization, they costed his plan out at $32 trillion over 10 years. So that would be $3.2 trillion a year, which is exactly what we're spending in total on health care in America today. So if a Bernie Sanders type plan, which is even more comprehensive than the, the plan in Canada because it covers um, dental care, vision care, uh, drug, dr- the cost of drugs, long-term care, and no referral to, res- to seeing a specialist. So this is going to be even more costly, I think, than the Urban Institute said, and result in huge uh, tax increases, and huge, including income and payroll taxes. These programs are incredibly expensive. And one of the things in Canada, what we do spend, Canada spends about 11% of GDP on health care. We spend about 18% in this country. But the, one of the ways that Canada controls their spending on health care is by rationing care and, and waiting times. As 
just retired um, Chief Justice of the Canadian Supreme Court, um, uh, Madam Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin said, access to a waiting list is not access to health care. Um, and that the, the issue is that when you make people wait, you are reducing your costs. And I don't think that the American people and the, have any idea what what it means or for their taxes or what it will mean for their health care in terms of pain, suffering, and waiting. There are huge costs as well for not being able to get the care you need when you need it because you can't function properly. So these programs are very, very expensive. Canada had no idea when they when Medicare came into being in 1984 that the demand for health care would be so much greater than they were able to supply and pay for. So even if Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, which then he laid out in his um, 2017 September bill, which four uh, potential Democratic um, candidates for president, uh, Cory Booker, the Democratic senator from the state of New Jersey, uh, Kristen Gillibrand from New York, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, and of course, Senator Kamala Harris from uh, California. They are all supporting this single payer um, idea, but the cost and the, the impact on people's health will be tremendous. And when people were surveyed in California, 47% uh, of the people that, that were polled that support single payer, when asked, um, well, this will mean a tax increase for you, they were astounded. And also they said, well, there, we support single payer, but we'll be able to keep our employer-based coverage. No, all private coverage is wiped out. Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the Anthems, the Aetnas, all private insurance, all people who have employer-based coverage, they will all lose their coverage, and health care will be provided as a single government monopoly, as is the case with the Veterans Administration in this country. And as you know, I mean, just reading every day in the paper about our vets who served our country, not being able to get the care they need, uh, vets... Uh, dying in in uh, on waiting lists, that's dying in uh, VA hospitals. That you know, actually today it's discovered that several many docs in the VA aren't even reg. They haven't even their license is not uh, up to date. They're not licensed anymore to practice medicine. They've lost their licenses. So this is a huge, uh, huge problem. And the VA should be a real eye opener to those American people who are listening to Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders' siren call for single payer, very expensive, and really rationing of care for people. In terms of the state of Obamacare today, we've seen, as you noted, there was no repeal and replace as was promised to the voters. Uh, the individual mandate has been repealed. The IPA, IPAB board, what I consider a rationing board, has been abolished. But what is the state of Obamacare overall today? Well, so... Um, as I mentioned earlier, and you just repeated, Obamacare was not repealed and replaced um, in 2017. I th as I said earlier, I think uh, President Obama and the Republicans won the Senate and the House based on the calls, the, the, the uh, statements and the speeches they made saying, our number one goal will be repealing and replacing of Obamacare, which is one is um, eight years old on March 23rd, 2018. Um, but this uh, did not happen. I think... Um, you're right. The IPAB, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, is a rationing board. It, it is now in that budget deal has been um, eliminated finally. The, indip the individual mandate 
which is really a terrible uh, thing. It didn't work um, if you didn't um, if you weren't able to show on your tax return that you had medical coverage, then you had to pay a penalty of $695 or 2.5% of income, whichever is greater um, as, as a fine. But the individual mandate repeal actually doesn't go into effect until January 1st of 2019. But there are some very positive things. I think the executive orders that President Trump signed um, on October 12th, allowing the emergence of association health plans where small groups can get together and then be a, form a large a pool, and that will help uh, people in the small group market get coverage that works and that they can afford with deductibles that they can afford to. Um, I think the whole idea of the short-term plans, um, allowing them to be, people could um, get a short-term plan for just under a year and it would be renewable. And very, very um, helpful for young people um, who maybe don't have employer-based coverage or have lost their job or just want a basic plan. Those are very good openings. And when the CBO says, you know, if we uh, get rid of Obamacare um, and the individual mandate, um, there will be, you know, um, 23 million people will lose coverage. Well, under these executive orders, many of these people will have options that they didn't have before. So that is, that is in my mind, very encouraging. Uh, the following day on October 13th, uh, President Trump eliminated the cost-sharing reduction um, subsidies that were being paid to insurers, about $7.5 billion uh, a year to cover these um, subsidies to help insurers cover lower-income people that were not appropriated. Those funds were never appropriated by Congress, so that was a good thing. They're fussing about that right now. Are the subsidies, you know, the CSR subsidies going to come back in the omnibus uh, spending bill? I certainly hope that isn't the case. I do think um, uh, Senator McConnell said that you know, we're moving on from repeal and replacement of Obamacare. Um, there are a few people out there right now who are saying they're trying to revive the uh, Graham Cassidy, uh, Lindsey Graham um, a bill that never made it to a vote last fall, which would give the states more, um, uh, give the states the ability to get the funds from the feds and do their own health care reform. I don't know whether that's possible right now based on what McConnell has said, um, based on what Thune has said, but I think one, a couple of things that are probably going to happen in addition to those executive orders will be, you know, Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan supported the idea of high-risk pools to have the feds to provide money to the states so they could build really good high-risk pools for those people who don't have employer-based coverage, there are about six million, who have chronic conditions. This would be a tremendous way to help those people who criticize the fact that if you get rid of Obamacare, we won't be able to help uh, people who have chronic and, and pre-existing conditions. So this will then make it more affordable for young and healthy people to buy coverage because they won't be having to cover those people, older and sicker people. So I think, you know, that's, that's a good thing. I think, you know, getting there's talk today of getting rid of the employer mandate. I think there will be a number of things done administratively under our, the new secretary of HHS, Alex Azar, who is a really terrific chap and I think will be a fantastic secretary of HHS. He was very much anti-Obamacare um, when he, you know, before he was um, uh, confirmed uh, this, this year as secretary of HHS. I think there's a number of things incrementally that can be done. The big um, issue that really is leading to the demise of Obamacare, which the American people 
still do not support because of high premiums, high deductibles, um, very small networks of doctors and hospitals, these things. So the American people don't like Obamacare. I think there are going to be incrementally a number of things that will lead to the demise of, as uh, President Trump had said, disastrous Obamacare. And this is this is all good. But right now, I don't see uh, the Senate uh, bringing in a reconciliation bill and being able to get 50 votes uh, to do a full repeal and replace. But in politics, as you know, um, every day is a new day. So, you know, one doesn't know. But that's how I see it now. The name of the new Encounter Broadside is The False Promise of Single-Payer Healthcare, and we've been speaking with its author, Sally Pipes. Sally, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ben. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.